Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We are here with Mr. Johnny Ray again. This is the second part of a three-part series with him. So if you're just tuning in now, make sure you go back and listen to our first episode on how he got started in farming. And we're transitioning now because we learned a little bit about how you got into farming, your your original vision for your farm and in the farm system. And I wanted to get more into kind of the farm system as it is now and how you got into regenerative agriculture. Um, So go ahead and just recap a little bit about your current farm operation and how you're running the farm right now for our listeners. Okay. Well, we say that we're actually, uh, I guess, advertised as providing uh, grass-fed beef and lamb. Uh, originally, it was just beef, and then with some of the work that we were doing, research we were doing, uh, we knew that we needed to move to multi-species, so we added lamb a few years ago. We've also added a small poultry operation, too. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the benefits of multi-species. Uh, but, you know, one of the things, Beth, that was kind of interesting, and this is a part of the learning process, when we first started doing this, we said, okay, we decided we were going to do cattle and we were going to do grass fed so we were going to be cattle farmers and as we got into that you know a couple of years we realized well you know we really weren't cattle farmers what we really were were grass farmers because we were we really wanted to produce the best product that we could with our cows and that depended upon having really good grass so but after a couple of years we realized well we really weren't grass farmers what we really were and we're unashamedly so dirt farmers (laughs) because it's really all about the soil and this has been a part of our understanding of what we're doing and and a part of the growth of the farm because if we if we do have really really good soil we're going to have good grasses and if we have good grasses we're going to have good lamb and good beef you know etc so that's been kind of a a part of uh you know, who we are and what kind of farming we're doing. And so I would say, you know, we do really see ourselves as, as dirt farmers. Our, our stewardship is of the soil. So that's that's been a, a, a huge part of how the farm, I think, has evolved over these 10 years. So now in being dirt farmers, which I understand and appreciate, right? what are some of the practices you're doing on the farm to cultivate that that healthy soil that supports sure. the grass that supports the cattle that year okay. th- probably fundamentally is what we would call you know rotational intensive grazing or another term for that or and maybe a variation is adaptive grazing but it is moving our animals uh, regularly and mm-hmm. often basically our steers move every day especially in for about nine months just yesterday, we're doing something in the wintertime that we call mob bale grazing. We take a part of the farm that we think maybe needs some help with fertility, organic matter, and our cows will be there for a month or so. We'll do uh, round bales of hay, and they'll stay there. And of course, they're you know fertilizing themselves, and there's the wasted hay, and we're using that to build up that area. And this year, they're actually doing it in this uh, eight acres of woods. We've cut out some small sections and we're going to try to build up the organic matter and and actually 
uh, stir up the seed bank and and and, and improve improve that. Uh, but but otherwise, they move every day uh, to fresh paddocks. Uh, our lambs move not every day, but about every three or four days. We kind of monitor, uh, you know, the paddocks and and see when they move. And then we also have a, a small uh, number of poultry, and they move about once a week. So it's all kind of circular. Uh, you know, p- animals follow animals, mm-hmm. and uh, they add you know certain benefit. Each one has different benefits that they add to it. And so we've seen. A significant improvements in both the soils uh, and the grasses since we've been using this intensive uh, type of grazing. Uh, we've worked with a professor here at State and uh, they've kind of monitored the soils for us and we see things like our root systems are much deeper now than they were when we first started. The populations in the soil of microbial activity, earthworms, enzymes, all of that is increasing. Uh, water retention is better in the summertime those the soil temperatures are cooler Mm -hmm. and in the wintertime they're warmer so we've seen a lot of just positive results uh, in the soil another uh, practice is is we actually uh, uh, have two horses that we keep up uh, and uh, we compost all of their manure and horses are great manure producers and then we take parts of the farm uh, after we've composted horse manure and we have an old manure spreader and we spread it on certain pastures and, and that uh, so that we've you know that's made a, a big difference as well we don't cut hay off the farm uh, actually I buy hay from uh, my cousin from whom we get our steers and we can talk about how we get our animals a little bit later but we feel like by purchasing hay it's really good quality hay not only are we bringing in uh, good hay for the animals to eat. It's also like importing in fertilizer because they're going to uh, poop out about 80-85% of what they eat. And so that's not coming off our farm. We're not taking nutrients out of our soil. What If we cut hay on it, you know, we're, it's coming right. from somewhere else. So we're doing things like that, 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 that that's making a difference. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had a consultant, Alan Williams, at the farm, and when he looked at our, our, our grazing paddocks, he said, Johnny, my first suggestion, most important suggestion is your paddocks are too big. You need to cut them in half. And so we cut them in half. And so where we had about 40, 45 grazing paddocks for our steers, we like double that number. And within a few weeks, we could, looking back to where we first started cutting the paddocks in half, we could see a difference. The grass was growing back quicker. It was greener. Of course, they were putting a lot more fertilizer in that smaller that area. That small area. Yeah. So I have so many comments and questions about all that information. Um, so that's a lot of that's a lot of different pieces to the puzzle, though, right. to, to get your soil um, maintaining fertility and keeping fertility and supporting the grass system to support the cattle. So how big is your staff to help <laughs> you help you do all that? Well, it's Deb, my <laughs> wife, and myself. We're very fortunate. Uh, we just called about a we, – and we've been looking for two or three years to have what we call a farm resident, yeah. somebody who would actually live at the farm. And we had a young man last spring who was a student here at State who sought us out. He, he was very interested in grass-fed uh, animals and grass farming, and he found us on the web and 
called and said, could I come out and see what you're doing? And he did. And he said, I'd like to help you. And so we said, well, why don't you come out Saturday? We're going to work cheap. And he ended up uh, helping us out in the spring. He graduated, thought he was going to be, had a job in Alabama. That didn't work out. And he called and said, hey, I'd really be interested in this position. And so. uh, So you had some help for a while? I'm sorry. You had some help for a while. Yes. So he, well, he, it, he's been with us now. He's been with us for about six weeks, and it's working out oh, beautifully. Fantastic. And we just pay a small stipend. We provide a place for him to live, but then we also provided some uh, upfront money so he could start his own farming enterprises, just as long as they That's fit cool. practically and philosophically with us. So he's got he's got some pigs in our woods. Uh, he's expanding our poultry piece. That's he's exciting. bought some sheep with me and. And then he helps me out. So it's it's really a great kind of symbiotic relationship. Yeah, and a great way for him to get started tinkering and farming without yeah. a whole lot of risk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was one of the things we wanted to do. He does have – he and his dad have some land in Alabama, and he's going to stay with us for two or three years. And when he leaves, he's hoping to be able to – take what he's learned and, and start his own farming operation that so. is fantastic though because I, I i i'm guessing any of our listeners that are not landowners or farmers um or perhaps the some that manage cattle a little bit differently don't realize when you say intensive agriculture intensive grazing that's not just intensive for the, the cows moving often but yeah. the person that has to move those cows right. often yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, it doesn't leave room for a lot of vacation if yeah. you're moving them every day and someone yeah. needs to be there and then to do all the other pieces of yeah. the puzzle too, like the composting and things yeah. like that. Um, so it's definitely um, a process for you and Deb too. Yeah. And one of the things it also does, it helps us uh, do more uh, serious thinking about the farm down the road. I mean, you know, we're not going to be around forever and uh, – this point in our lives we think about slowing down and what what happens to the farm next but having somebody there doing this is giving us some time and also adding giving us some new ideas about what comes next for the farm mm-hmm. now and if our listeners are not familiar with the term regenerative regenerative agriculture um, if you do look it up a bit it is it is grounded in a fair bit of science and there's farmers all over the world practicing this right. uh, particularly in Australia you'll find a good bit of information but you're also part of um, actually you know and I was just reading this morning that it has been uh, a hot topic at many conferences here in the U.S. the right. last couple of years, whether those are food conferences based on local farming, production, things like that, um, or actual agriculture conferences. Um, but you are part of a regenerative agriculture group. Is that correct? I just well, remember seeing the video of the different farmers all over the the U.S., and y'all were part of that video that was shared a while back. Uh, as far as like being an official member of some group, no. There are some. There are a couple of uh, regenerative uh, ag organizations that I follow very closely, like okay. the Savory Institute mm-hmm. would be one. Uh, the Rodale Institute would be another. The Berry Center in, in Kentucky would be another. Uh, and then there are certain farms that are, I think, that are maybe in some official status as regenerative farms that I certainly like to keep up with. I would say, quite honestly, for me, the word regenerative had been a little bit of a new term. I, I realize now it's been around for a while, but when we first started doing this 10 years ago, the words that usually came to mind were like organic or naturally raised mm-hmm. or pastured. And then the word sustainable farming was quite vogue and, and popular. And then, of course, regenerative. And I really like the, just the term regenerative because 
when you think about sustainable farming, you sort of, to me, that say, okay, you're trying to sustain where things are now. And with with using the word regenerative, it's not just sustaining, it's actually improving. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are. We want to see every year, we want to see our soils better. Uh, we want to see our grasses better. We want to see our animals better. Right. And that's regenerating. It's it's making things better, regenerating. Yeah. I, I love the way you describe that. And it does it does set up a vision for the farm yes. that it will continue and be able course, to maintain and Of course, I think the key improve. is to regenerative is you do it with the tools and the knowledge that you have. I mean, that's why we don't bring in, you know, outside inputs. We don't use chemical fertilizers or pesticides or antibiotics or hormones. We're, we're trying to do this in a natural, regenerative way. And using the environment right. that, that you're given with the piece of property yeah. that you have. Yeah. Um, and surely by doing that, too, you're also saving money by not purchasing all those things. Um, not that it's not um, doesn't require other time management and, and inputs in the system on your end, but yeah. yeah, you're certainly not purchasing some of those things from the outside. I also pre- appreciate that you mentioned some of those different institutes because Alan Savory of the Savory Institute would be kind of one of the founders of the process of regener- right. regenerative agriculture and the, the, like the, the practical on the ground management. Um, yeah. And then you mentioned the Rodale Institute and, and the Berry Institute, all great resources of information too right. for listeners. And we have a great if they re- want more information on regenerative yes. agriculture. And we have a great resource right here in Mississippi, the Stockman's Grass Farmer Magazine, which has been in Mississippi for, I don't know, decades, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago when the uh, founder and editor passed away, and then Joel Salatin became the editor. And uh, Salatin is, I think, recognized as one of the top regenerative farmers in the country. But uh, that's Mississippi Magazine, and uh, it's got – we get a a monthly issue, and every issue there's always two or three articles that are just so appropriate for what we're doing. Say the name of that magazine one more time so that our listeners – The Stockman's Grass Farmer. Okay. Magazine. Yeah, because that's a great local resource to right. have, too. Sometimes when there's information coming from other parts of the world or other parts of the country, yeah. our local farmers here in Mississippi can be skeptical of how that information might translate to their right. farm. So right. it's always helpful to have local yeah. resources, too. And just, you know, sometimes some of the farms or information will be for large-scale uh, grass-fed farming, and it maybe doesn't apply to us, but there's always a few, couple of three articles that are just very, very appropriate. Okay. Very helpful. That's great. That's yeah. good to know. Um, so at what point in your in your um, kind of farming journey, we'll call it, did you get familiar with this topic of regenerative agriculture or the rotational grazing practices? Um I would say we were we had probably looking back. I'm thinking we'd probably been around there three or four years before we really, because uh, I mean when we started we were pretty darn green, and uh, just kind of feeling our way along. And uh, I don't remember any one particular event or book or presentation I went to, but uh, I guess things were just sort of coalescing. But I, it probably took us three or four years to really get into it and really get committed to it. I went to a couple of uh, conferences. One was with Southern SOG that I found to be very helpful. 
uh, some of the people I was reading uh, were very helpful. And that's Southern Saga Sustainable Agriculture. The Southern Sustainable Agriculture Working Group. Okay, just to make sure for our listeners that might not be familiar with yeah. the the acronyms. Yeah. What was the other one you were saying? Uh, the other conference or whatever. Uh-huh, the other that conference. that was the major conference I think that I went to. Uh, but you know, just some of the people we were reading, like yeah. like Wendell Berry, like Joel Salatin, uh, other people. Often other farmers or scientists. Yes, I've actually who, yeah. I've, I've tried to visit some farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan Williams had given me the name of some farmers in the South, and I went and spent uh, you know like a day with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things they would always say, I would maybe have some specific questions about maybe nutrition, health, grazing, or whatever, and they'd say, "Now, this is what I do." I can't promise you that it's going to work for you, but it, these are anecdotal, <clears throat> you know, stories or, uh, you know, what we've discovered here. And, you know, try them. They may or may not work. And some of the things that we would try did, some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. We've, we've had our own trials with maybe it was deworming practices. You know, we deworm naturally. You know, some people think what we do is kind of, I don't want to use the word hokey, but whatever. I mean, we deworm with apple cider vinegar, right. uh, 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 an organic soap called Basic H, and diatomaceous earth, and we've had success with it. It's uh, the mixture of those. Yeah, I re- I remembered the apple cider apple cider vinegar part from when I was out at the farm, but I yeah. couldn't remember those other two components. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, but it works for you. It works for us, you know. We, we've had very little problems with worms, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a real issue. Is I think around here, uh, we do keep a dewormer on hand. I'm certainly not going to let an animal die uh, if it has worms, but we have had to use it just very, very sparingly. We, with our lambs, we use a lot of herbs. Uh, a lot of the herbs have various medicinal purposes. Everything from some of them are natural dewormers. Some of them are good for nutrition. Some are good for respiratory. Uh, whatever, and so we regularly give our lambs a sort of bouquet of. Uh, of, of herbs like two or three times a week we, mm-hmm. we herb them and uh, some of our customers say it even they can tell the difference in the meat, in the meat. So, yeah I think I mean I think the whole issue around worms is a major issue you know any farmer raising animals has to face of course I think the best uh, thing that we do about worming is this rotational grazing moving our steers as often as we do you stay ahead of that cycle mm-hmm. because once our steers leave a paddock they're not going to be back on that paddock it used to be about 30 to 40 days now it's more like 60 to 80 oh wow our problem has been not being the grass is growing so quickly after we move them off is we really need to be grazing more steers uh to finding really, that right stocking yeah, density yeah. Once you subset uh, the different paddocks for that rotational grazing practice, how many individual paddocks do you have? Uh, well, this, the rule of thumb, now this is the information that I've got primarily from Alan Williams, who I, I look to is really the most knowledgeable, but other people I've read have the same, uh, make the same suggestion. It's not the number of animals per acre. It's the number of pounds per acre. So the general rule of thumb would be 40,000 pounds to the acre now you've got to say okay if it's if you're in a drought uh, you may have to change that may have to be bigger Mm -hmm. or if it's really a great growing season you maybe make it smaller but typically the the rule is 40,000 pounds to the to the acre and so when Alan saw our herd 
well, we knew we didn't have 40,000 pounds. We only had like 20-something uh, steers, and they weren't all 1,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. And so that's when he said, Johnny, your your paddock is too big. You've got to reduce it in size. So then, you know, you try to do the, the bit of the math, figure out, okay, about, you know, you're sort of guesstimating at pounds. We're not out there weighing the steers every month or two. Mm-hmm. So you kind of guesstimate at what the steers are, and then you kind of calculate the size of your paddock with the with the you know what you think are the the pounds that you're carrying that's really interesting though yeah but i mean like i just said before we really started noticing a difference when we cut those paddocks down in terms of you know how quickly they were recovering and then when you you don't want the steer to just the steers to overgraze that paddock you want them to eat about 50 percent and the rest you want them to trample and and just leave okay and then they move on to the next next paddock one of the things that was interesting, and I've read this in several different places, so I, I will hope it's true, when you do the kind of grazing we're doing, it, it takes about two years or so, give or take, for there to be a manure pile on every square foot of that mm-hmm. piece of land. If you're just letting your cows just graze free without any intensive grazing, any of this paddock-type grazing, it takes over 20 years to do that. So you can just see just in terms of utilizing – manure is a very important product for us. Mm -hmm. So you can see how uh, the the difference in this kind of grazing, what that's doing around soil fertility. I would say one thing. One is, first of all, you know, you can't expect quick fixes. On the other hand – Every farmer that I've ever talked to who's who's moved to this kind of uh, agriculture, these kind of grazing practices, I think the Savory Institute has just scores of examples how quickly, though, the land does begin to recover. Mm-hmm. It, it's really quite amazing. And, and we've certainly seen uh, that happening at our farm. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because oftentimes when, when new terms and practices come about, folks want to couch it as a silver bullet yeah as like a a, something a solution that will solve all of the problems and and as you mentioned before there's things and practices that worked for you there's things that didn't on your farm and certainly for any landowner listening if they were wanting to make a change to any of the any of their practices um, there are certain things that may work for their farm operation depending on the size the amount of investment capital they have to put into it um and a number of other factors, their their climate conditions, things like that, uh, that it's not going to be a silver bullet for everyone. Yeah. In every farm system, there's certain, certainly a number of different farm systems, different ways to farm. And so this is just one way that's working for you and yeah. serving you well and your community well, yeah. too. And I guess I'm a beneficiary of that, too, now as a, <laughs> a recipient of some of the grass-fed, <laughs> grass-fed products that you have. Um, We're going to take a short break here in just a minute. The last thing I wanted to I wanted to just ask you about here um, was where do you continue to look for information and different social groups related to your farming practices? Because I know just from talking with you often that you're always looking for more information and you're always finding more information. And I'm always really curious where people look to find that information because if you just get on the internet, it can be a dangerous place for information, but there's also a wealth of great information that we have access to. So I'm just curious where you go to. You know, there are a number of places. 
I think probably the best place is if you can find other farmers who are doing this mm-hmm. and go and most of the ones that I've ever contacted were delighted to have you come and spend the day. I mean, they seem to sometimes be kind of hungry for the company, and they love to talk about what they're doing mm-hmm. and to find some of those farmers and, and go and spend the day. And like I said before, they'll tell you what I'm doing may or may not work for you, but it's working for us, and they encourage you to you know experiment, try different things, and see what works. So that, that that's very helpful. I think there there's there is a lot of good – uh, work that's been done in terms of you know there are people who are writing about this who've had good experience and uh, I, I mentioned Wendell Berry I mentioned Salatin Alan Williams there are scores of other people I seem like I'm always uncovering some writer who's you know writing in this area and mm-hmm. will either try to read a, a book an article you know go online and find something they've done uh, and there is a stuff on the internet both you know websites facebook podcast and all that i think are very very helpful mm-hmm. uh i'm not a great person with technology i, I, you know, I don't even have a smartphone and uh, here you are as a <laughs> yeah, podcaster I, I find the smartphones very distracting uh but dale has one and, and our farm resident has one and you know we can be out and we can have a question and we can google stuff and, and, Get and find out stuff spot. you know pretty quickly it's you know pretty helpful sometimes and you know like a lot of days like if it's rainy i'll just uh go online and i'll google a topic that i'm interested in or something that we're working on or having a question about and and i'll usually find some pretty helpful information mm-hmm. there but i i do feel like overall uh if you could find some farmers that are doing this you know, spend a little time with them. And there are, you know, there are good organizations that, that do have good workshops, symposiums, and conferences. And, you know, go yeah. go to one of those on, on occasion when you can. Yeah. I'm all, you know, there's always so much information out there. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to even capture it all. Yeah. And as rapid as uh, policy changes, the economy changes, and our science changes. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard yeah. to keep up with it all and then integrate it all, too. Yeah. One of the fun things for us is uh, to to do like pilot projects, yeah, uh, or experiments. And I mean, you know, with a small farm like that, you know, we can, I guess, afford to do it or take the time to do it and see if it works. Mm-hmm. One of the things now that we have uh, a farm resident, uh, we've got a really good microscope, and I want to do some. Uh, trials with some of the deworming practices that we're using with our lambs like maybe you isolate a group and all you do is apple cider vinegar and another one you do apple cider vinegar and diatomaceous earth Mm -hmm. and you know do some things like that and try to get something i mean it's not going to be really scientific but it's going to be more than anecdotal right and uh give you a little more information yeah and therefore when you share with somebody they're not they can't say well that's just hocus pocus you know what have you done with that we can you know show some concrete examples and we you know we do that with with planting grasses we do a we have what we call dessert paddocks that we finish our animals on Mm -hmm. and so we have some cool weather grasses that we're you know getting going right now so they'll be ready late winter early spring for steers or lambs that we're going to finish and then we'll do some warm weather dessert paddocks for steers and lambs we're going to finish in the summertime and you just kind of experiment with different grasses another one to see if it really makes any difference whether they're just grazing your pasture grasses or do they spend six weeks grazing uh pearl millet and sorghum sudan and and those you know kind of some specialty grasses Mm -hmm. like that I love that you call them dessert paddocks, but yeah. uh, they like it too. So <laughs> that that scientific approach, though, I think is really important yeah. too for for other folks to hear that 
you're not waiting and waiting for someone else to right. do some trials, even if, as you said, it's not going to be highly replicated. But you're next to a land-grant university. So if you find some interesting information in your trials, you can always try to reach out to people yeah. over here that might want to scale them up to a replicated right publishable yeah. scale. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to go ahead and take a break. Um, folks, join us back on our nep- next episode where we're going to be getting into a little bit of uh, Mr. Johnny's vision for the future of his farm as well as other family farms in the U.S. Thank you. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu. Thank you.